Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Throughout the first half year of the Core Principles Podcast, some themes have developed. One of those has to do with the way God works in our lives. This episode reviews some of the highlights of the 2020 episodes of Core Principles, emphasizing one of those themes. I promise this episode can inspire you, and you won't want to miss the end of it. Two of the most powerful words in the Bible are, but God. For example, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and attempted to kill him, and they sold him into slavery. Joseph was going to be killed, but instead he became the second most powerful and influential man during a time of famine. Joseph encountered his brothers again and told them, You intended evil against me, but God meant it for good. Or consider David, the shepherd boy who had the world's most powerful tyrant trying to kill him. David hid in the wilderness and remained in a mountain cave. Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. Or consider Jesus' admonition to the haughty. You seek to justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The theme related to those two words, but God, is this. With God, struggles we face tend to go from difficult to challenging to overwhelming to impossible to done. Now let's hear from some of the guests from the Core Principles podcast about this theme. Our very first guest, Scott Allen, discussed his book, why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. He pointed out how overwhelming are the forces seeking to silence and overwhelm Christians in America these days. But he gave this true message of hope. I really appreciated that you included a story from Corey Ten Boom of reconciliation and forgiveness and grace. I remember reading that same story, that account. Uh, in the 90s, I was in a Sunday school class, and I should say I tried to read that account <laughs> because I yeah, broke really down utterly. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Tears. Yeah. And it's so now as we're witnessing in America this increasingly violent revolution happening right now, can you foresee us reconciling and unifying and giving each other grace? You know, God is going to win in the end. Uh, we know that. He is going to prevail. Justice is going to prevail. These are the times for which we're born, and these are the times we have to stand fast as the church. And part of me is very energized by that. You know, I thank God that, you know, we I live in a time where our lives can really count because we can fight in a significant way for what's true and good in a really important time in our nation's history and in the history of the world. Um, how that's going to work itself out, uh, only God knows. But I know a lot of Christians are really discouraged right now, and there's real reason to be discouraged because ideological social justice has so deeply penetrated our culture, our systems of education, our institutions, 
Um, those who advocate for it, the organization Black Lives Matter, for example, has a multi-million dollar PR budget funded by people like George Soros and the Tides Foundation and these far left groups. You know, it's like, wow, what chance do we have? We're, we're up against a Goliath. Oh, yeah. By the way, God loves it when these weak little Davids come on the scene with a smooth stone and trust in God and his word. And he loves those situations. He loves those situations where uh, you've got Peter, you know, an uneducated fisherman against the Sanhedrin. I mean, there's so many stories like that in scripture. You know, many of them. So I take a lot of hope from that, you know, but I just want to make a plea to our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, hold fast to God's word, trust in him. He's more powerful. Psalm 2 says that when the nations scheme against God and against his anointed, his people, he laughs. He's established Christ on the throne and Christ is still on the throne. But I just, we need to be faithful, you know, to Christ and really believe in him and fight for what's good for our neighbors. You know, the ideological social justice, it sounds good because it's talking about justice and equality. It is destructive and we need to fight against it. And we need to put forward what real justice is because it's good for our neighbors. It's loving. We have to love our neighbors like we've never done before. Star Parker shared with us some of her inspirational testimony about how she went from a life of despair to one of great accomplishment for the betterment of others. I was so inspired by your story, Star Parker, and I watched the video that was produced by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Oh, my testimony. Yes, ma'am. And I just want to say, I'm really so thankful you are my sister in Christ. Well, thank you. Well, that's just that we're attempting to put the truth together that this this nation is good and that we are sisters and brothers in Christ and that there are many of us are African-American that don't put our color in front of Christ. And in me in particular, I think and why I'm so impassioned in this movement is because I already lived the lie of the left. I spent years in the lies of the left from uh, their lie that my problems were someone else's fault or my lie that America's so racist I shouldn't mainstream or my lie that I was poor because others were wealthy. And buying in all those lies that we still hear today, I just got recklessly out of control, not really thinking that there was anything here for me, total lawless living that landed me in criminal activity and drug activity and sexual activity in and out of their so-called safe, legal, rare abortion clinic after clinics. And then finally, I had a gut instinct way down deep inside when I was pregnant again, uh, that maybe there was something wrong with killing my offspring. So I didn't kill that child. I had that child and ended up on welfare. And so I watched my life now spiral in this little dark hole year in and year out until finally someone introduced me to the gospel. They told me that God was in Christ, that he was reconciling the world to himself. He didn't count my sin against me, that he loved me and that he died for me. And I thought, wow, this is really incredible news. And that he would save me. And so I accepted those truths. I incorporated them into my daily decision making. And my life started turning around and turning around for the good to the point where I was able to finish college, get a degree in marketing, international business. I started a business. Then the 1992 Los Angeles riots destroyed my business. But by then, I was already more familiar with some of the changes in our culture. I'd been articulating those changes in our culture. And so now, I'm at a place where I believe I was being called to do something about the problems instead of just talk about the problems. And so I started on a journey toward what I do today is run a policy institute 
here in Washington, D.C., where we promote market-based solutions to fight poverty. We fight poverty uh, through messages of faith and freedom and personal responsibility. We believe that charity belongs to the church, not to the government. So we want the government out of the charity business, that the answer to poverty is freedom, and it is personal responsibility. That is not a welfare state. So that's our work here, ending abortion, every opportunity we get, making sure that we get all of these anti-poverty programs back to the states where local people can start engaging again in how we're going to really help people that can't help themselves. Pastor Anthony Walton told us about two episodes that happened while he was in prison, one of which was the ultimate recovery from catastrophe, and the other one set him on a course to minister to others and lead people to eternal relationship with Christ. So God has a specific plan in (laughs) mind for you. Yes, sir. Well, then you were sentenced, and in March of 1984, you were uh, given an order to surrender custody. And even during that time, you still maintained this facade of innocence. Right. But then, uh, this is going to be probably the most difficult question that I'm going to ask, but as much as you're willing to share it, will you take us through that night when you contemplated tying the knot in that bed sheet? Well, it was... When they gave me 12 years, I had just got married. I'd only been married two years. And all I could see was 12. And I said, you know, to me, it was like I cannot do 12 years because I didn't understand the prison system. So all I'm looking at was 12 years. And I was in the cell by myself at the time. And because I was saying I cannot do this, there's no way I could do 12 years. And the thing about it, one of the reasons was because of my wife. I had fallen in love, man, and I didn't I didn't want to didn't want to lose her. So. I knew 12 years she wouldn't be there when I got out. So I'm just going to end it. I'm just going to end it all. And I had had never thought about contemplated suicide ever in my life. Going through all the tragedies at home and things like that. I just wanted, I knew I was going to eventually get out. But this way, being locked up in in a cell and being controlled by someone else is when you can get out, when you can eat, when you can shower. I couldn't handle it. And my way of... Dealing with it, I got to go. I, got, I just have to leave here. And um, I got that bed sheet and I wrapped it, wrapped it up like a rope and was really about to do it. And I, I, I looked up, up and there was a pipe in my room that, that ran through, I guess, the water, water, water pipe or something. And I saw that it was strong enough to hold me. And I was about to do it. And I heard a, a, a voice um, in my spirit, not audibly, says, you shall live and not die. And that really helped me to to overcome that the spirit of suicide. Sometime later there, while you were still incarcerated, you had uh, another incident in your cell, mm-hmm. and this one was truly a turning point. Yes, that, that obviously was a turning point yes, in sir. your physical life. Yes, but now we get to this turning point in your spiritual life mm-hmm. where you describe uh, reaching for your Bible, yes, and when it hits your lap, it opens up to a passage in Isaiah 59. Yes, sir. And a lot of folks can relate to seeing something in the scripture that they want to claim, yes, but you claimed a passage that most of us would reject really, really hard. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read these first three verses of Isaiah 59 okay. and ask the podcast audience, consider yourself hearing these words, reading them from the Holy Scripture. Would you have the courage to claim this as a message for you? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you 
so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Now, Pastor Walton, when when I read that, I'm like, I don't want any part of that conviction right there. Do not tell me that, God. But you claimed that as a message. Uh, if, if you would just step us through then what happened in your spirit with with that moment. Okay, I was um, basically been in denial, but I was turning toward God, was reading the Bible and everything, and I'd gotten baptized in there, and I was trying to receive the Spirit of God, and I'm trying to still trying to lie through that thing. And I was praying, thinking God didn't know. And when I was praying, I did open the Bible like I always did, and it slipped out of my hand. It just slipped out of my hand right in my lap. And that passage came out and that you had spoken lies, your hands, blah, 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 everything. Let me know that this is from God. I'm never going to get anywhere until I confess what I've been hiding. And from that point, as difficult as it was, I began to, to share it with my mom, with my dad, with my sisters. And I knew I had to do it with my wife. You know, because she had stuck with me and I didn't know whether I was going to lose her or not. But I knew I had to get this off me in order for God to come in and help me. My father, Bill Howerton, shared a story of how God revealed to him the urgency of completing a long-delayed project. I had started uh, gathering a lot of data about the Bible and certainly these uh, covenants that were required and the feasts that were required. And I was putting it all together, but... uh, by the time I retired in 1996, I had a, a lot of it, and I was urged to write the book then. I didn't. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, in a nice hot summer day in 2012, July, could have been the 13th, it was on a Friday, I got a haircut that day. But I was also scheduled to get a massage. You kids, you and your brothers and sisters had given me these certificates to get these massages there. So I had it set up. But I had a meeting over here at the hospital, and the masseuse's mother was one of them to be there. So I had to leave early, came on, and went over, and uh, she wasn't there. So I asked where she was, and they said, well, something happened over at her daughter's place, and she had to go over there. So I wondered, what in the world? So immediately after, I called over there, and her dad, uh, an attorney here in town that I know very well, answered the phone, and he explained to me, what had happened. So I went over to see. Well, what had happened was that after I left, this lady was coming in to go to a beauty parlor next door. And uh, she, instead of hitting the brakes, she hit the accelerator and the thing jumped the curb and ran right through the front of the building over Elizabeth's desk and into the room that she had her table and everything set up. And that car was sitting right on top of that table. And I could see myself down under that thing, dead in the doornail. And Something spoke to me. He just said, you know, now look, you're not going to live forever. I want you to write that book. So get busy. Wayne Atchison of the Billy Graham Library shared how God used the horrible pandemic to enhance an existing ministry in ways no one could have predicted and which would have not previously been possible. I want to tell you one other thing uh, during this coronavirus. We've always had a Christian response telephone where people can call 24 hours a day. But we had to rev it up when this coronavirus started. And Clay, uh, we started this in March, and we've had 
about 180,000 phone calls from people from the United States and other parts of the world who are calling. They're desperate to pray the prayer of salvation for fear they might die. Some of them just can't wait to pray the prayer of salvation and that to make sure that if they were to die, that they're going to heaven. And we've had about 10,000 people to make decisions for Christ during these last few months with our coronavirus hotline, as we call it. And it's been a tremendous ministry. It's something we never dreamed. You've probably seen Franklin's ads on the television. It's just amazing how God has raised up 1,600 volunteers to accept these calls. And it's technology today is where they can receive the calls at their home. And they pray with these people. That's been a tremendous thing of late. And, you know, everything, Franklin is such a great leader. He leads the Samaritan's Purse. He leads the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And uh, he, he just has a heart for lost souls, just like his daddy did. Rochelle Starr explained how her faithful pleas to God were answered in a startling way she could never have dreamed nor devised, which has now changed hundreds of lives for the better. You founded Scarlet Hope 13 years ago. Would you tell us how and why you did? Sure. I was working in a corporate, um, I was at, in advertising marketing in Louisville, and I would drive from Southern Indiana where I lived. Um, my husband worked at a church up there down to Louisville. It was just about six miles. And on that six mile trip, I would just ask the Lord to give me a people. Esther has always been a book of the Bible that really impacted me and influenced me. And so I wanted to be used by God for my life. And I I would ask the Lord on my way into work every day, God, give me a people, send me somewhere. Let me do something meaningful for you. I was driving into work one day in May of 2007, and I heard the Lord say, Rochelle, I'm sending you to women that are in the sex industry. And I at that exact moment, I was passing a theater X that was up in Clarksville, Indiana. And I didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't know anything about that world at all. So that's how I knew it was from God. Cause I wasn't thinking that I was, I hadn't researched or read a book or heard anything about it. And as soon as I heard the Holy spirit say that to my, to my spirit, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus would do. So I called my husband. I told my husband that the Lord was sending me in to minister to women that were in the sex industry. And he, to my surprise said, that's exactly what Jesus would do. And from, it was history from there. Um, we began praying outside of strip clubs. Um, a friend of mine and I would drive out on Tuesdays and we would go pray at theater X. We would pray at strip clubs and we would just pray for the Lord to open a door because we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to minister to them. We didn't know how to reach them. And the Lord just over the course of a year began opening doors for us to be able to minister to the women in the industry. Andy Andrews told us about this theme very explicitly as it was actually the subtitle of his latest book, Just Jones. I know is very meaningful to you, Andy Andrews, because you made it the subtitle of your book, Just Jones. He said, sometimes a thing can seem impossible until it's actually done. That is a theme of life that I, I believe people ignore to their peril. I think that uh, when we're looking at accomplishing our purpose, when we're looking at accomplishing God's purpose for our lives, it's important to note 
that, you know, this kind of ties in with what Joan said about you can't believe it, everything you think. Because so many people believe, well, you know, that's not, you know, I'm not the kind of person that can do this. This is not what I do. And yet, humanity has a history of accomplishing the impossible almost every day. Uh, if you if you even look around you, I mean, Clay, the people who are listening to us now need only look around and and realize that everything you see, uh, you know, the the light fixtures, the ceiling, the building, the table, the chair, the microphones you and I are talking into, uh, all of this stuff was at one point considered impossible uh, because it was all in somebody's imagination before it ever became reality. The wheel, the chair, everything was in somebody's imagination before it became reality. And if it was in somebody's imagination, you can bet somebody else was saying, that's stupid, that's ridiculous, that can't be done, you're wasting your time. You know, many of us have, I'm sure you have many stories. You know, the book that I wrote that has sold more than any other book I've ever written is a book called The Traveler's Gift. And that's in 40 different languages and has sold millions of copies around the world. I tell you that not to brag. I tell you that just, you know, to remind people if they don't know, that book was turned down by 51 different publishers, right? I mean, 51 publishers said that what I had written was not worth putting on paper. And yet it sold millions of copies. And so I, I, I really urge people, you know, this book, just Jones is is kind of the culmination of of where I am now. It's the culmination of what I've learned, of the wisdom I've gathered. And I have people sometimes that'll say to me, "Well, I wish I'd have met you 30 years ago." And I'm like, "Well, no, you don't. You wouldn't have wanted me to meet me 30 years ago. I couldn't have helped you at all." But now, after 30 years, I can help you with some stuff in a few hours. It's taken me 30 years to learn it, but I can explain it to you in a few hours. And, and so there, there are things in our lives that I believe that it is important that we look closely, closely at when, when we're considering ourselves and our future, and our families, and our very purpose, why we were put on earth. You know, there is huge hope. I don't care what situation you're in. I don't care. You know, you you could, you literally could be in the worst time of your life, and yet, in reality, well, everybody has one. I mean, if you look from birth to death and you examine every life, you could probably say, well, there was the worst time. Everybody has one. And, and, and even in the worst time of your life, there is a proof of hope. Jones told me one time, he said, there's not just hope, there's a proof of hope. And that proof of hope, even in the worst time of your life, is that, that you're still breathing. If you're still breathing, you're still here. 
And if you're still here, that means you haven't accomplished what you were put here to accomplish. If you haven't accomplished what you're put here to accomplish, that means your very purpose has not yet been fulfilled. If your very purpose hadn't been fulfilled, that means the most important part of your life is still ahead of you. The coolest part of your life, the most fun part of your life, the most successful part of your life. There's more laughter to to enjoy. There's more success to earn. There's more children to influence. There are more uh, people to teach. There is more. And the proof of that is by the fact that, that we sit here and breathe. So you can see that God is always, always working things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It is up to us to be faithful and to seek his perfect will. Consider finally this last example from a phone conversation I just had with my friend David Parrish, whose ministry, World Missions and Evangelism, seeks to spread the knowledge of Christ among previously unreached peoples. He has mission workers in parts of Honduras. They were told by the government that they must not leave their dwellings or they would be arrested. That, of course, curtailed their evangelistic outreach. Then, Hurricanes Ada and Laura hit. Those storms wiped out the villages where the World Missions workers were ministering. Everyone there was effectively rendered homeless immediately, and the basic need of finding food became paramount. World Missions and Evangelism started a new feeding program, and the government officials said they could move about freely if they were providing that essential need. They have provided over 250,000 meals and have continued to share the gospel. Over 6,000 Hondurans have committed their lives to Christ as a direct result. Things were the worst they could get. But God always works things out for good, even better than we could know to try. And now we think about what is currently happening here in the United States. I'm recording this on Monday the 18th of January 2021. The world is going to change dramatically this week. None of us know exactly how that is going to happen or to what outcome. But God... Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.